This is Disaster Tales. This is Disaster Tales. Hi, I'm Kate Fairweather, and I'm here today with my co-host, Barb Blonsky. How's it going, Barb? Hello. Hello. <laughs> Doing pretty well. <laughs> and we've got a really sweet episode for you today. And by sweet, I mean, like, really sweet. sweet. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the Boston Molasses Flood in 1919, which is way worse than you would actually think it would be right off the bat. And then the Imperial Sugar Explosion in Georgia in 2007. Eight. We'll find out in a minute. Um, so, Barb was looking up the molasses <laughs> flood. Let's see what she has to say about that. Okay, that was uh, the Boston molasses flood of 1919, also called the Boston Molassacre, <laughs> taking off on the Boston Massacre. <laughs> but anyways, the Purity Distilling Company was uh, was was located on um, 529 Commercial Street in North Boston, right near the harbor. And they produced industrial-grade alcohol to make munitions for the war. But also, the company was reportedly stocking up molasses to produce alcohol uh, prior to the implementation of the 18th Amendment, which is prohibition. And it was it actually went into effect on January 16th, the day after this, the disaster, which was January 15th, 1919, and uh, it would was going into full. It would, it would go into full effect one year later. Um, they shipped the molasses to Cambridge from their plant at Commercial Street in order for them to be able to make the munitions. Um, it was a poor working class industrial neighborhood, which many times is the case. Uh, where they housed industrial production places along the shore, along with the housing of many Italian and Irish immigrants. And this is in Boston Harbor, right? Right. And during the First World War. Right. Got it. Yep. And so Arthur Gell, who was the company's uh, bookkeeper or you know financial officer, authorized the construction of a tank to store molasses in. And the tank was to be 50 foot high by 90 foot or 90 foot around, with an overall circumference of 240 feet. So it was 50 foot high and 90 feet across, and then all around the outside, it was 240 right. feet. He authorized the, the construction of this thing without ever even consulting an architect or an engineer. He didn't. He just said, "Okay, we're going to build this tank," and he contracted with Hammond Ironworks to construct the tank. Well, they made the tank of 18 steel plates with rivets holding the plates together. So first of all, if you think about the the amount of weight that liquid, especially like molasses, would the pressure that it would exert on the on the tank, it was very substandard as far as the capacity of not only the metal, which was found to be um, very substandard in its in its thickness, but also riveting it together because liquid is always going to try to find the path of least resistance. And so the tank was never filled with water to leak test it to see if it was going to hold anything. So the company began to put molasses in the tank and store it. And Gel claimed 
It's sound, sturdy, and ready to use. With no understanding of what he was saying, obviously. <laughs> yes. So, so we're looking at a five-story tank that's going to be that's that's ninety feet across, and it's going to be filled up with thick, heavy liquid molasses. Yes, two point three million gallons. That's the capacity that it has yeah. between two point three and two point eight million. So in the in the time prior to the actual disaster occurring, they filled the tank to capacity eight times in a in a couple of year span, putting it under an intermittent cyclical load. So it would expand with the with the filling, and then it would contract again once the the molasses was removed from the tank. So that in itself created a stress in the metal and in the construction. Yeah, that kind of movement will cause metal fatigue. And I'm sure that the temperatures in Boston fluctuated enough to where that also caused metal fatigue. Right, which was a huge factor in this explosion. But um, they found that there was also a manhole cover at the base of the tank, like a filling cover or like a vent cover, that had a a fatigue crack in it. And they, they feel like it reached a critical point, and that's probably what caused it to fail catastrophically. But Jell was waiting for this big shipment of molasses that he had purchased in the Caribbean. And it was the month of January. It had been very, very cold in the, um, like the zero range for several weeks. And then when the shipment finally arrived, the temperatures rose to like 40 and 50 degrees. So the molasses that was already in the tank was very cold. And the molasses that they added to the tank was warmer because it had come from the Caribbean. It took a little while for it to cool off on the way up. And it had been brought from that warmer climate area, so it was thinner and more active in its movement. And so when they put the molasses into the tank, the warm molasses with the cool molasses, it began to circulate because of the temperature differential, and it started to ferment. And when fermentation occurs, of course, it produces gases, it produces an increase in volume, and so this put an extra um, stress on the tank. Molasses had been oozing from the pl- between the plates, and local residents were aware of it. They saw it. They realized that you know it was happening. They would go and collect it and use it in their homes, and many times little children would be at the base of the tank just licking up the gooey molasses. Can you imagine a bunch of little children standing around a tank and just licking right, it? Right, right. <laughs> in the middle of, in the middle January. of January. <laughs> so the tank, they said people in the in the area who lived around it and people who, you know, saw the tank on a day-to-day basis said that it groaned and belched like it would make these incredibly loud burping sounds and like you could hear it groaning under the pressure and the internal pressure of the, the fermenting liquid. The so, belching would have been from, what, the gases escaping? Yeah, the gases, when they expanded? yeah. Right. And so okay. the, the gases would it, would, it would bubble because fermentation causes bubbling and there was no place for it to go, mm-hmm. so it would just bloop, 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 bloop inside the tank. A local worker named Gonzalez brought to the attention of the the people who um, who were in charge at the purity company, including Arthur Gell, that there was there was molasses leaking from the tank from the very beginning. It had, had never not leaked, and um, he was told that there was nothing wrong. And Gell had the tank painted brown to hide the leaks. Oh, so instead of it's instead of fixing the leaks 
and going in and checking the holes and the rivets and all that stuff. They just painted it brown so that it would you couldn't see you couldn't see the molasses coming out because it was the same color as the tank. Right. That's exactly Brilliant. what they did. Yeah. <laughs> so it was from the very beginning, it was very poorly planned. Well, it wasn't planned because there was no engineers or any architects in on the planning at all. And so it was very poorly poorly conceived and implemented. Well, on January 15th, 1919, at about noon, local residents reported hearing a very low rumbling sound. It was like a thunder sound coming from the tank. The tank then exploded. And what happened was when the tank exploded, the rivets shot out under the pressure like bullets. And many people were injured and some of them fatally by these rivets coming out of the tank and hitting them. Wow. It released. Um, a two-story high wave of molasses from the tank, plus the 18 huge plates started to move with the the rupture of the tank. And so those were part of the debris that were caught in that wave of molasses. That's, yeah, that's deadly. There were the metal plates, the rivets were shooting out like bullets, and everything that in its path, the wooden housing and things like that, were picked up and swept into the harbor. Wow. Okay. Um, a police officer named McManus uh, was, he was a foot, like a, a foot beat cop, you know, the, that was his beat. Mm -hmm. He got on his station phone and contacted the station saying, send all emergency personnel you can. There's a flood of molasses. I wonder what their reaction was when they got that phone call. If it was like, yeah, McManus, right. There's right. Flood, I, I, sure. Right. They probably didn't have any, you know, understanding, but that tank had been being filled and emptied all those all those couple of years. And so it finally just gave into the stress. So the wave was traveling at about thirty five miles an hour. It swept away buildings, houses, horses, uh, people, and and anything in its path was in this sticky sea of suffocating molasses. And it left a wake of this sticky molasses everywhere. It collapsed the elevated train track near the tank, adjacent to the tank. It rendered transportation nearly impossible and forced several horses to be put down because of the suffocating stickiness of the, of the molasses and because of injuries sustained when they were knocked down by this wave. So I would think that some of those things hitting the horse's legs would, right. would have crippled them up. Right. Like the molasses and the debris that was in it. Is that right? That was part of it. But also the molasses hitting them, it drowned them or suffocated them because they couldn't breathe because the thickness of the liquid that was they were engulfed in. Right. Four firefighters were killed in the building right next to the tank. There was a granite firehouse right next to the tank. And because it didn't move with the wave, the, it, the wave filled up the, the, the firehouse and it killed four firefighters. Wow. It left 21 people dead. And then 150 were injured, and many of them had severe head and spinal injuries from being hit by the plates and the debris. And many of those people perished subsequent to the accident because of the medical inability of the medical uh, capabilities to, to keep them alive because of the spinal injuries and different things like that. They succumbed to their injuries. Many people suffocated. So then that means that they were probably had head injuries and probably paralysis right. and things like that? Spinal injuries, being hit okay. by the, the, the debris and things like that. Um, people being rolled over in the wake of this flood and just having injuries from that. 
you know, being tumbled along in this big sticky flood. They had pictures of people being rescued and they're just mired in it. They can't even really move. They had people had to go out and actually attach to them and pull them out because they couldn't move in the stickiness. It wasn't just like a water flood. It was a viscous, thick liquid that was engulfing them. Mm -hmm. A lot of the wooden structures in that area actually were carried into the harbor. And so some, sometimes the people were able to ride the debris and they did survive, but there were many people who were swept into the harbor and they weren't even found until two or three months later. They found their bodies, several months. Wow. Of course, if you think about 2.8, probably two, between 2.3 and 2.8 million gallons of sticky molasses, the cleanup itself mm -hmm. had to have been just amazing. The um, nightmare. A nightmare. They they did get some of the fireboats that were on on the harbor and fill them with salt water, and use that and sand to try to just clean up the liquid molasses. But they said that everything was covered with molasses. People tracked it onto the subways. It ended up on public telephones. It ended up everywhere. And the whole, it says everything in everything a Bostonian touched was sticky. Ugh. So you can imagine what it's like when you're baking with something like that and how sticky it is, but to have everything in the environment that you're in be covered with it completely. It's just crazy. That reminds me of that W.C. Fields. You ever see the W.C. Fields clip where he was, he had, a, I think he had a pie or something that was in paper and it, and it was sticking to him. He couldn't get rid of it. He kept trying to throw it down and shake it off his hands. And he'd wipe it on his hands. It would get on the other hand. And that that was funny. But this, I'm sure, was not. Well, if you think about it, I mean, in a flood, sometimes you can reclaim some of the things that are, you know, damaged in a flood or broken up in a flood. But they couldn't reclaim any of their clothes. Everything was completely saturated with this molasses. It got into the ground and into the groundwater. And they said that um, even now in, in North Boston, if it's a warm day, you can smell molasses because it's still in the soil. So, um, wow. yeah, it's crazy. So anyways, the initial claim that the company made you know, because they were so responsible with their safety and things like that, was that anarchists blew up the tank, that they wanted to thwart the war effort. Well, and anarchists were blowing things up back then, yeah. too. But uh, yeah. this tank, no, that I don't think they'd blow up the brown right. tank. <laughs> it, it did it on its own. <laughs> so after a formal inquiry, though, it was found that the construction of the tank was faulty and that the cause of the tank rupture was the faulty... Uh, construction and the fermentation that was going on inside the tank. So would, have, would a venting system have helped with that, do you think? It probably would have, but I think it would have been a more active fermentation if they vented it. Because one of the components that you need for proper fermentation is a mix of oxygen. So if they vented it and oxygen could get in there and circulate, then that would increase the fermentation process. But at least the pressure buildup wouldn't have been as bad, maybe. Because usually they have a fermentation trap. Yeah, they were making alcohol. Well, they knew the ramifications of not venting it. I really think that they probably did know, but they just didn't. They didn't think about it. They didn't consider it. The residents of that area filed the very first class action lawsuit in Boston against the Purity Company. And they were, uh, after three years of hearings, 
the purity company eventually had to pay $628,000 in damages, which left an estimated $7,000 per deceased victim's family. Well, and remember in the Triangle Factory how little they paid per right. death. And that was just a few years, was that a few before, years before? Yeah, a few years before. It was 1913 was a Triangle Fire. Yeah. yeah. So, but the estimated damages at that time for the area was well over $100 million. Wow. And so for them to get off paying only $268,000, it's just not right. Yeah. They did institute several new regulations after this explosion. Um, one of them included oversight that any project had to be oversighted by a civil engineer and a licensed architect, which would have been really helpful if they'd have done that with this one because it would never have gotten built the way it got built. Mm-hmm. And then um, they also, it led to the the changing of the zoning so that they could not place industrial uh, storage or industrial chemical factory type things in a residential area, which is, you know, very beneficial because if there is an accident like that, then people in that area, there's more populous, they're going to be a lot more deaths. Sure. And then also that it led to changes in the gas industry where they were not allowed to refine or to store gas in populated areas. So it changed the legislation in that respect. But, you know, as, as it always happens, <laughs> the hindsight, you know, it's always 2020. You look back and you say, oh, yeah, well, if we'd have done this different, but once it's done, you know, these people lost their lives. It's really sad that they have to wait until people are killed before they legislate safety. And that's been happening. That happens all the time. It still happens. And that's the sad part about it, because people aren't forethinking, they're, they're back thinking. Mm-hmm. So there was a song that came out of this great disaster. Yes, it was, the song was called The Great Molasses Disaster. And it's on an album by the Dukes of El Hazred. <laughs> a rock band from Canada. And the rock band is called The Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. <laughs> and I listened to it, and it's very, very uh, hard rock type song. I listened to it, too. It, kept, it keeps saying, sugar, 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 everywhere. It was kind of What really a sweet strange, way to but... die, I know. <laughs> yeah, it was a really interesting song, and it was right. kind of punky because <laughs> they were yelling the lyrics. I, I'm wondering if they didn't, if it was originally a song that they did a cover for or if they wrote it themselves because it almost sounds like it could have been written like contemporaneously at the time of the disaster too. But uh, I couldn't find out where it had come from. Maybe they did write it themselves, but it was an interesting song. And, and if I'd have been able to, (laughs) if I'd have been able to get the lyrics to show up on the recording, that would have been helped me a lot, (laughs) but it was, yeah, they, (laughs) You know, it's like it's like the Edmund Fitzgerald. Everybody writes songs about these disasters. They were commemorating it. But yeah, they, what a sweet way to die. That was that was one of the lyrics that kind of caught my attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It wasn't a sweet way to die, though. These people no. suffered horribly. And you think about in the aftermath, they had no place to live. They had no clothing, no possessions. Everything was covered in molasses. Mm-hmm. And so they they just you know, basically had to start all over again with no financial assistance, obviously. The other thing is that they didn't have, unless they had relatives, they didn't really have access to any cleanup to wash their clothes out. I mean, it was the middle of winter 
And even though it was kind of warm right. that day, I'm sure it didn't stay that way for long. So with with no place to live and all the available places destroyed, it's even harder to find another place to live. And then if you, I mean, I'm right. sure that they tried to salvage and wash everything that they possibly could, but in the middle of winter, even taking baths wasn't a very frequent thing at that time. Right. And so, you know, it, it just kind of permeated the, the entire area because the cleanup, I'm sure, you know, using fireboats from the harbor, they probably weren't able to do a really good cleanup. Mm -hmm. The pictures that I've seen of it show that it people have like up to their knees, you can see where the molasses is just saturated, their clothing and their shoes and everything like that. Yeah. And it's a complete, it was complete destruction. If you were hit, you were hit hard. And, you know, you think about the cleanup, even when a person, like if they're taken to a hospital, mm -hmm. you have to deal with that cleanup before you can even treat them. Yeah. You know, which is going to interfere with their treatment and the capability of caring for them. And people are going to say, oh, I don't want them in here. They're all covered with molasses, you know, as far as taking people in in a situation like that, because they don't want it all over them. Yeah. And then, and we know nurses were scarce because this was after the 1918 influenza epidemic. And the war was going on, too. So then, you know, just the cleaning detail alone would have been, you're right, very difficult. I mean, I would think that they'd have a what we'd now call a decontamination room where they'd bring them first and and hose them down to get as much of it off as you could. Um, fortunately, there mm -hmm. was no fire because I don't know that molasses is right. particularly flammable, but sugar in its powdered form right. is. Right, and that's what you're going to be talking about today. That's right. You're going to be talking about the Imperial Sugar Explosion. That's absolutely right. On February 7th in 2008, at about 7.15 in the evening, there was a series of sugar dust explosions at the Imperial Sugar Manufacturing Facility in Port Wentworth, Georgia. Uh, that resulted in the fatality of 14 workers and injuries of many, many others. Eight workers died at the scene. Six others were eventually, they eventually succumbed to their injuries at the Joseph M. Still Burn Center in Augusta. 36 workers were treated for serious burns and injuries, and some caused permanent life-altering conditions. Now, the Imperial Sugar Company mm. was headquartered in Sugarland, Texas, and it was incorporated in 1924. Uh, they purchased the Port Wentworth facility from Savannah Foods and Industries in December of 1997. Originally, that plant was called the Dixie Crystal Plant because they were still refining sugar at that time. It actually, they actually started doing it as Savannah Foods back in the early 1900s. Besides the Fort Wentworth facility, they also had one in Gramercy, Louisiana and Ludlow, Kentucky. So it was a very large company. I've seen the Gramercy plant. Have you? When I lived in New, in New Orleans, my friend Lloyd worked there for a little bit mm -hmm. at the Gramercy plant. Yeah. Did they have a lot of no. dust around them? Oh, you know, those kind of environments, yeah. It's unavoidable because it just becomes airborne. It's so fine. You know when you're baking a cake and you put a little bit of flour into the, mm -hmm. into the, the mixer, it flies up in the air. Well, you're on a huge scale when you're refining sugar, so you're getting all that dust. Yeah, that's right. You come home looking like a, an old person, their hair all gray. <laughs> Well, the way this factory worked is they would get raw sugar and they'd refine it into granulated sugar. And they'd dump all the sugar in these three huge silos. 
then what they would do is they would have the sugar go on a series of belts and screw conveyors, which is like a screw in a tube. When you turn it, the stuff moves forward. And then also the, they used hammer mills. Hammer mills are something that just beats the stuff down into smaller and smaller particles. And usually they turn, but they have these hammers in them that beat against the material and try to make it more refined. They also use cornstarch, which to kind of keep the sugar from clotting, basically. <laughs> and cornstarch is even finer. And so they had a lot of material there that was in a form that could have been combustible. Dust explosions, like grain elevators and sugar plants, had been an issue of concern among United States authorities since three fatal accidents in 2003 with efforts made to improve safety and reduce risk of recurrence. Now, when I was reading this, some of these things didn't go into effect until just a year or two before this event, but they still had time to do some of the implementation. When you went into that plant, there was sugar everywhere. The sugar would come in from the, through a tunnel from the silos, and it would go to, onto different conveyors to different areas where they make powdered sugar or granulated sugar. There was sugar everywhere. It spilled off the conveyors because they didn't have sides on them. They're just flat. And it floated up, and there was huge piles of sugars like on the beams and the pipes that went above the, the work area. And the work area would get so covered in sugar sometimes that people would have to dig or plow away to their workstation because the sugar was up to their halfway up to their knees. So that's a major housekeeping issue is having that much material that's not being cleaned up. And they did try to clean up and recycle some, but they really didn't have a housekeeping system or program. Now, didn't they at that time too, when they did need to clean up, a lot of times they would use air hoses and air jets to move the sugar from where it was, which, of course, aerosolized it even more and put more of it into the environment. Right, right. And, and yeah, they used compressed air. And, uh, of course, that would make it blow up into the air. But even when it's settled, you know, it's still, I mean, I wouldn't want to be having to dig my way through sugar to get to where I was supposed to be doing my job. But they, they actually had people report that they had to use, like, shovels, little pushers, like hose or something, to get to where they were supposed to be working. I wonder if there's any ramifications from inhaling the sugar, if there's any kind of a lung disease or, or difficulty from that. I would think that any kind of particles in your lungs would cause you problems. Also, you got to consider mm -hmm. that this sugar was laying around, and I'm sure that they had rodents. So the sugar would have been on the ground, but probably also there'd be rat droppings and mouse droppings on the ground, and that would get crushed in with the sugar and it would be on the ground and so when they were blowing the air up and and shoveling it around that there was probably droppings in it as well and that's definitely not healthy for your lungs and also when you you have something like that a dry powder if there's any moisture or if it gets wet it'll begin to ferment and so then you have the products of fermentation as well so you could end up with fungal issues and yeast issues in the environment in the yeah, air that's yet. It wasn't a clean place. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I think though no, that if you go to obviously not. most of the older packing refinery places in the country, you might find that those kind of things are, they're already figured into the product because you can only have so many parts per million of rat droppings or so many parts per million of weevils or <laughs> whatever. 
But this place... Security standards are not good. <laughs> no. And, and like I said, the housekeeping there would have helped a lot. If they'd have kept that sugar off of all those places, we'll find out in a minute, that it would not have been quite as bad. So at 7.15 on the 7th of February that year, the, there was a new Imperial Sugar Company CEO, and he was actually touring the facility at the time with three employees. He walked through the refinery, and they were startled by what sounded like a heavy roll of packing material being dropped from a forklift or something, a big thump. Three to five seconds later, a loud explosion knocked them backwards, and the debris was thrown throughout the large packing area through the doorway. The security guard at the gatehouse and others working in nearby buildings also heard a loud explosive report. And outside, there was a massive flame fireball that went up and erupted above the packing buildings and the silos. There's actually security camera footage of the explosions because there was more than one. But the first one sent up a fireball. There was, of course, superheated air, and anybody that was in the path of that superheated air got burned, their flesh burned. A lot of workers trying to escape had trouble finding their way out because the smoke filled darkened work areas because the power went down first thing when that blew up. And you know that you're supposed to have power independent exit signs in a lot of places to as part of your emergency equipment. And it doesn't sound like they had that. Plus, the explosion actually knocked debris into and collapsed a couple of the st- stairwell landings on the second floor. The fire sprinkler system failed because the explosion ruptured the water pipes. Garden City and Wentworth Fire Department personnel were on the scene in less than 10 minutes after the first explosion. They saw they had dense smoke, intense heat, ruptured water mains, and large debris strewn around the fully involved burning buildings. And there was 40, over 40 buildings there that were burning at that time. So you can imagine rolling up on that one. They, they, so they, they start trying to rescue people, but what happened was the other co-workers were going, they came out and they went back in and they were trying to rescue people. And some of those people died because they went back in to try and rescue their co-workers. Mm. So the Chemical Safety and Hazard Board did an investigation after this. And, and let's talk a little bit about how dust explodes, because I think that uh, some people may not realize that if you store grain in an elevator and there's dust floating around, it gets to a certain concentration, it'll explode. You have to have fine enough particles that are suspended in the air. They have to be close enough to where when they catch fire, they'll catch the next one on fire. So there has to be a certain concentration in there, a threshold. Also, you have to have oxygen, and then you have to have an ignition point. And in this particular disaster, um, the ignition point, they think, was an overheated bearing. So when you light up that kind of a gas cloud that has tiny particles in it, they actually burn very rapidly. The the piece will burn, the air around it will expand and with the heat and it'll catch the next piece on fire. And it just like a big chain reaction, it just goes piece to piece to piece to piece, Mm -hmm. boom, 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 boom. Um, And on a a small scale, but on a large scale, it's just one big flash explosion because it happens so fast. When I uh, was looking at the... Now. When I was looking at that stuff, I saw that initially in the the conveyor area where they were conveying the sugar from the silos to the, the floor, that it was an open conveyor belt 
but because of the desire for purity, they covered the conveyor belt, which contained the dust more in a more concentrated way. And when they had a clog in one of the outlet chutes and cleared it, they found out that more than likely one of the bearings of the conveyor belt is what started the ignition. So when it when it exploded, it exploded like a, a torpedo, just all the way through that tube, and which forced it out into the into the the area where the people were working um, with such intensity that it actually collapsed floors. It was that intense of an explosion because it was like coming rifling through a barrel. That's right. And, well, they had been using that belt conveyor for a long time, and they were losing a lot. Of, of sugar off it. Then they'd go in and reclaim it and put it back on the thing. It would fall off again. And in order to keep the contamination and to keep the the sugar on the conveyor, yes, they built that big, it was like a tunnel around it. And it had vents that would pour in sugar at different spots. So some of these vents did get clogged up. Like you were talking that sugar clots mm-hmm. and gets hard. And upstairs from that night, they had been taking iron rods and shoving them down through the chutes, trying to break that sugar up enough. Because when the big clump of sugar touched the conveyor, all the sugar behind it fell off. So it was real important to get those clumps out of there. And they just couldn't get them all out. And they think that the fact that the sugar was getting clogged up on the conveyor is what overheated the bearing. And yeah, you're right. They had that explosive decompression the fireball actually went in both directions from it, went through the tunnel, and because it was contained, it couldn't escape and dissipate. It kept all the particles close together. So, yeah, that was the first explosion. Now, that explosion caused a huge fireball. The people that were in there felt the floors move. They heaved up, the concrete floors heaved up three inches. And then there was doors flying off, walls falling down, bricks getting spewed out into the yard. And like I said, a lot of that came in and actually blocked escapeways. The force of that explosion, the first fireball, blew all that dust that had been sitting up on top of the beams and on top of the pipes and laying on the floor in the workroom, blew that up to where it became a combustible cloud. And then those blew up. So they had the first explosion, then they had another one, and they had another one. It spread fire all over all these 40 buildings. And the people that were in there working, not all of them could get out. So we had some emergency mm-hmm. planning failures there. The first one is that with, when the power goes out and you don't have your exit signs, or if the exit signs get blown off in an explosion, it's harder for you to find your way out, especially if there's a lot of smoke and if you're injured. The other thing was that they hadn't really practiced emergency evacuations. And they had some new employees there. They didn't really know how to get out, so some of them would... Some of the older employees would grab the new employees and say, go this way. Then when they'd go there, the exit would be blocked because of the debris. So that's why so many people got caught in there and injured. The other thing was that their emergency communication system, which normally in factories is like a loudspeaker, they couldn't hear it. So they were depending on cell phones and handheld radios to get information across. And when you do that, If the person's listening and can hear it, they get the warning. And if they, for some reason, can't hear it, then obviously they don't get the warning. So they don't know where to go or what to do. And there wasn't a lot of explaining of what you really should do if something like this happened, even though they knew that sugar explosions happened in these kind of plants and that they had had explosions and fires in that plant before. 
And I think, too, you know, the fact that the sound in an industrial setting like that with hammer mills going and with conveyor belts running, and I'm sure there was some type of ventilation system, that it would have been nearly impossible to hear a radio. Yep, you're right. They had the three-inch concrete floors on the second floor heaved up and broke apart. The explosive force of the secondary dust explosions as they moved through the four-story building on the south and east sides of the silo spread that fire all over the entire site. There was wooden plank roof from the palletizer building, which was near the railroad. Uh, Those shatters and blown into the sugar rail car loading area. Security cameras located at businesses around it all got pictures of that violent fireball eruptions. As I said, the fire department and emergency personnel got there within 10 minutes of the time that the explosion occurred. And they were confronted with a situation where they couldn't see and there was debris in the way. And so it was going to be difficult for them to get in there and help anybody. Eight workers died at the scene, including four who were trapped by falling debris and collapsing floors. Two of those fatally injured workers reportedly had re-entered the building to attempt to rescue their co-workers, but they couldn't get back out. So we had a few heroes there that passed away, which is unfortunate. But at least you could see that they were concerned about their fellow employees. And I think that's an important thing. In a situation like that, people do rise to the occasion and they do make attempts to rescue or to help other people. But unfortunately, in those situations, they may not have the training or the understanding of the best way to actually help or rescue other people. And so it ends up them them being fatalities as well, you know. Yeah, and, and, you know, when it comes to, you know, if you run out there in the in the first 60 seconds and the fire department isn't there, you, you think, well, maybe I should go back in and see if Charlie's going to be able to get right. out or, or find my brother-in-law because usually at these kind of plants there was relatives in small towns in large plants. Right. So who knows if they were related, but... Obviously, they felt the need to go in and help their coworkers, but they didn't have, like you said, the experience to know whether it was dangerous. And sometimes the training for emergency responders is to not go in there because if you're going to put yourself in danger and die, then who's going to do the response? Right. It's a delicate balance, I think. You have to try and preserve yourself so that you can, can still do the work you're supposed to do. But it's really tragic when that kind of thing happens and, and people react differently and you just don't know what to do. And I think that running back into the building was about the bravest thing somebody could do. For sure. They're to be admired for it. It's just sad that they perished in the process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the CSB report indicated the ignition from the overheated bearing was probably the ignition scenario. They don't know for sure because all of that was destroyed. You can see pictures of the conveyor belt, and you can't even tell it's a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. The causes were sugar and cornstarch conveying equipment not designed or maintained to minimize the release of sugar and sugar dust into the work area. That housekeeping sugar dust stuff was the big problem. Also, airborne combustible sugar dust accumulated on the places that weren't work area, like I said, above, up in the ceiling, and on the beams, Mm -hmm. on pipes. And the primary explosion inside the steel conveyor belt is what spread it the way it did instead of being in an open area where it could have vented on either side. That being in an enclosed space, that rapid decompression is what caused it to spread so rapidly. You wonder if add-on measures in a lot of situations will create dangerous situations because 
that was something that wasn't in the initial design of the conveyor and the initial design of that process. And so by adding that, they they created a situation that would make, I mean, if there was a fire with an open conveyor, it probably would have been much easier to extinguish. It would have been a, more containable possibly, mm-hmm. but because it was a closed system and uh, uh, you know, not designed that way initially, then I think that that really was what made it a situation where it became catastrophic. I think you're right. And the fact that they had had, I mean, the community, the the engineers and work OSHA and the CSB, the Chemical Safety Board, they all had been past, had been giving out warnings about sugar explosions and dust explosions and the fact that you needed it needed to be vented, you needed to keep up your house cleaning and things like that. Uh, the other deal was that the company just didn't get their safety training out like they should have. They had safety training once a month, and you went on the month of your birthday, so it was called birthday training. And they'd ask the people what they retained from their training, and they, they would say things like, oh, well, you just got to know where the exits are. Right. It wasn't comprehensive training by any means. But the training didn't stick because, they I mean, they sat there all day listening to somebody talk about sugar safety and after a while you kind of doze off. I've been in plenty of those right. kind of trainings. And, and I wonder if, if the new CEO would have had a different uh, take on things after touring the plant, if he had maybe would have seen some of those things or maybe tried to implement the things and maybe it was just too little too late, you know, if it's, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Well, I get the impression from the reports, I get the impression that they really were lackadaisical in how they ran their plant because they had already had two fires there. And closing that space with the sugar in it and the dust situation and not properly venting it, that also makes me wonder, you know, that because the reason that they closed it off wasn't for safety or anything else. It was to try and keep as much sugar as they could from falling. To increase productivity. Sometimes that bottom line, and we've seen it so many times when we've discussed disasters, that that financial incentive is what causes people to cut corners and to to go past safety regulations, and then it creates hazardous situations or deadly situations for the employees. We saw it with Triangle and with other ones, too, you know? That's right. And the secondary dust explosions, the the rapid spreading of fires through the facilities and the fatalities that were related to that probably wouldn't have occurred if the sugar company had enforced routine housekeeping policies and procedures to remove sugar dust from all the overhead places where it was getting caught. The Port Wentworth facility risk assessment performed by insurance companies in May of 2007 and the report that was submitted to the Imperial Sugar Company did not adequately address those combustible hazards. So even though they did have a risk assessment performed, and I'm not sure by who, if it was their insurance or an agency, they even they didn't address all the major problems that had to go with mm-hmm. this. So the big takeaways from this are, first of all, risk perception. Because the, it had always... This plant started out small, and they added to it and added to it and added to it and added to it over the years to where it was over 40 buildings by the time of the fire. So I don't think they did a lot of like structure planning. 
I think that they, they put up the silos and they put up the building and then they put up the pallet building and offices and all this stuff. And, and it was kind of haphazard. Um, but the first takeaway is that the inherent difficulty in risk perception of workers and management is, is so low frequency, it doesn't happen very often, but high severity as a catastrophic event, which is, it, it hardly ever happens, but when it does, it's really, really bad. That that had, uh, even though they had several near-miss fires and explosions, efforts weren't made to reduce the accumulation of the fugitive dust, the runaway dust, in the facility, which ultimately led to the large loss of life in this incident. So basically, it's it's one of those things where, oh, it's never going to happen here, but if it does happen there, it's catastrophic. And I think that's human nature, too, to just think, oh, it could never happen here. You know, that's that pride and that, that, you know, yeah, it always happens to somebody else. But when it happens to you. Yeah, no, it'll never happen here. Yeah. <laughs> Another of their takeaways was, was that training, there was missing training, the importance of training. It was that the, the training of preventing and responding to the process of safety incidents the lack of specific site combustible dust training and dust reduction training and the lack of effective management change to encourage those things were not there. And that is one, that is one of the factors that made this such a severe, deadly explosion. You know, if y'all could see my hands while I'm talking, <laughs> because I use them all the time. <laughs> The third thing was the role of external groups during audits. The third and final takeaway is the potential way forward to help reduce these types of incidents in the future. Both insurance companies and industry trade association groups are reported to have audited Imperial Sugar Refinery prior to the explosion. And although these inspectors had training in recognizing combustible dust hazard, it really wasn't passed on to the management in a way that would make them sit up and take notice and f do something about it. So basically three things, the perception of risk, you know, it's, it won't happen here, but if it does happen, it's going to be horrible. The importance of training. So their employees are actually protected. When you train employees in safety, you are protecting them from injury. And that was just not there. Some, they didn't even, they didn't even have route, escape route maps up on the walls, which of course they wouldn't have been able to see. But if you look at them before the incident, then you kind of have an idea of where to go. But these new employees hadn't had any training at all. And then the last thing is that the, that the audits that were done beforehand and the incidents that happened beforehand didn't create enough urgency in order to make the sugar company actually try to lower these hazards. Well, and the thing, the thing that's really it's sad about the whole situation is that these things really are preventable. And that's why the legislation and the safety standards are in place is to prevent these kind of catastrophes. And when people ignore the standards and they ignore the safety regulations, then inevitably you're going to have catastrophic accidents mm -hmm. because it's just the way things go, you know? Well, and, and something like this not only damages the plant and injures the employees, but it also has an effect on the economic area. The local economy 
after this factory closed down, it, it really crashed. And Imperial intended to rebuild and return to production by the end of 2008 with replacement buildings by that summer of the following year. Um, but, but that's a slow process. And when you're trying to feed your family and all of a sudden you don't have any place to work, it's very difficult. Um, some of the victims filed for legal suits for damages against the owners and the company hired to clean up the refinery. Imperial said that the explosion was the main reason for major loss in the first quarter of 2008. So Imperial lost money. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people who lost their lives. Yes, the lawsuits <laughs> went through and they, be, they were awarded fairly well. But after the first eight awards, the company was saying, now, wait a minute. You know, we've paid, uh, we've paid everybody, and so we really shouldn't have to pay any more. Uh, so, you know, we've done our duty and we're done. But there was still people who had, they weren't, they weren't killed, but they had life-altering injuries. They had third-degree burns all over large portions of their bodies. They had physical injuries, I'm sure amputations, and uh, possibly even paralysis from injury and falling. So these are kind of things that, yeah, you can give me some money up front, but it's not going to stop just because you give me money. I'm still going to need all this, this therapy, and I'm going to need these doctors and operations and equipment and things like that. So they tried to limit their liability, but the last thing that I read was that they, they still ended up and had to cough up some more because uh, it, was, it wasn't enough for the people to go back to a life. Right. Was that a, something that would have been covered in like a worker, workers' compensation type claim? Or because it was, was it found to be the fault of the factory? Or Yeah, some of it was workers' compensation. There were some workers' compensation funds available, but the factors that contributed to the explosion were the fault of the company. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the vents. They didn't have the housekeeping. And those were all things that there had they had been advised through reports from some of these monitoring agencies were things that needed to be done. And they either didn't pay attention or it didn't get to the right person or you know how those kind of things happen. Right, right. And so in in essence they the company didn't want to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you find that in a lot of companies. I know the dairies up in that area, they they cause a lot of contamination to the water table because of the way that they fertilize their fields and the nitrates escape yeah. into the water. And that causes things like miscarriages, illnesses, cancers. And they don't, <laughs> I know someone was telling me that they were at a meeting and when the people in the area talked about the, the nitrate levels being so high, the company representative actually said, Oh, well, you know, that's because the, the raccoons and the deers, they crap in the woods and it's like, no, they've been doing that for 10,000 years. Yeah, that, I was at that meeting. That was actually me. <laughs> I, I was actually, at, it was a water purity meeting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was ridiculous. And someone stood up and said, look, I cannot even go out on my back porch and have a barbecue because the smell is so bad. Mm -hmm. And supposedly they've helped with legislation and changed that, but... They they supposed to knife it in now, but that that makes it even worse because then you break up the topsoil and when you have a rain event, it just washes into the stream. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's 
Yeah, they've got toxic algae blooms in our, in our local lakes and stuff like that. And it's, wow. you know, oh, we don't know why. Well, we yeah. know exactly why. <laughs> it's the <laughs> raccoon know? and the deer pooping in the woods. Now, they've been doing that yeah, for 10,000 right. years. We only had algae blooms over the last five. So, right. you know, <laughs> don't blame it on the deer. Well, you know, I was just thinking, too, I know we're, we're kind of off subject, but um, we've had some, some uh, pretty major issues with glyphosate with the Roundup. Mm-hmm. And I know that Monsanto sold it to Bayer. And now Bayer has all these lawsuits against it because of the glyphosate, because it causes leukemia. And Bayer is having to pay all the liability because Monsanto sold it off because they knew it was coming. Monsanto would be considered a potentially responsible party, a PRP. And so I can see that the lawsuits might fall back to them. Uh, sounds like Monsanto has always been, I'll say this, at the risk of sue me, but go ahead. I don't have anything. Uh, Monsanto, according to some of the EPA folks I've talked to, has never been a real responsible company in the United States. And so, you know, they pay their fines. Instead of cleaning up, they'll say, okay, fine me. Uh, they pay the fine. They keep, they keep doing the pollution. And, you know, they try to absolve themselves of responsibility and all these things. And they probably, I'm guessing, but they probably sold that to bear knowing that this was coming up so that they could shift responsibility. But when there's a case of prolonged contamination, it's not just the person that owns it now, because you could have bought property that had barrels underneath like Love Canal and not known. Right. But you would be responsible for the contamination. But the law says that you go back to the person before that and the person before that, all the way back to when the barrels were put in, they are all potentially responsible parties. Well, we got a lot of lot of that going on around here. So anyways, our takeaway from the sugars. Yeah. They did pass more legislation that had to do with the housekeeping and the the way that they produce their sugar. And it and it stands as an as an example of dust explosions. Cause it destroyed the entire plant and the economy of an entire community and killed people and and crippled people for life and that's something it, it needs to be stopped before it happens right which is is a a good idea unfortunately it seems like that's not the way it works which is really sad because the the loss of human life and the suffering and the pain that people have to endure is is just beyond belief when a situation like that when it could have been avoided if you think about the ones that we've covered already, the Love Canal was, you know, the laws didn't come till after the problem started. Uh, the Triangle Factory Fire and the Binghamton Factory Fire, they didn't pass the laws until after people died. And in this one, they didn't, and, and in the molasses ex- explosion, they didn't do anything until right. after it happened. And cleanup after And the happened, railway disasters, too. Yeah, yeah, they help people that do the job after the event but they don't do anything for the people that were injured in the event. Okay, I think I'm done preaching now. Okay. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I yeah, I I have I have distinct opinions about these kind of things and that's one of the reasons I do the podcast. Right. <laughs> so well, and the thing is if you think about, you know, the injustice of it, oh, there's a lot of injustice that goes on for the sake of the dollar, mm-hmm. which 
you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. So yep. <laughs> you see it, you know, people perish because of it. So, Yep, it but. is. It's sad. Well, this was really interesting, though. I learned a lot when I was looking all this stuff up and while we're talking about it. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I really appreciate you studying up on all this stuff and doing these recordings with me. Yes, I enjoy it. It's interesting to me. My husband and I have talked about it. He says, I never even knew that these things happened. And that's the thing. (laughs) People are forgetful. They don't even know or they don't even remember or they have never been told the things that happen. Well, Well, considering Boston, I don't know how many Bostonians know about this, but the only commemoration of it is there's a park in the area where the molasses spill happened and there's a there's a plaque that's it's not even eight by ten inches that says what happened on it and that's it you know that's that and the fact that you could still occasionally smell molasses you know they they don't know that it it passes out of the common Mm -hmm. knowledge the general knowledge and it doesn't come up again until right something else has happened that's been damaging and I think too that folklore is not as as readily available now as it was maybe in years past, because people are focused on other things, and that family, you know, storytelling and the folklore and the different things about when I was growing up, the kids don't get that now because they're they're too busy and tied up in media that they don't actually sit down and talk to people about this is the way it was, you know, which means you're losing history. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Although, if you get on YouTube, (laughs) (laughs) you could find all this stuff on YouTube. So, uh, or on Google, either one. But um, the only problem with that is you have to verify that it's the actual information. Sometimes it can be misleading. (laughs) Not, not. That's right. Well, I'm going to let you go because I'm sure you got stuff to do and I got to start editing this, but I really appreciate you doing this today. Yeah, it was fun. And if you want to say hi to anybody, you're welcome to. Mm -hmm. Anybody in particular you want to say hi to today? Well, hello to all of our faithful listeners. And we're so thankful that you're out there. And (laughs) if you would like to support this podcast, we would love to have you go to our (laughs) Patreon site and check it out because we are listening to Patreon. I said it right. <laughs> Yay! That's disaster. You can learn even at our advanced stage. <laughs> um, that's right. And the music that you hear is by Stephanie Cerny. Yep. A girl close and, to my uh, heart. <laughs> yes. Who is expecting her third child. Congratulations. Yes, thank you very much. I'm going to be a grandma again. And that's eight. We're doing pretty good. Yay! <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm up to one, and I think that's where I'm going to stay. <laughs> well, that's good. You know, there's quality, there's quantity. Either oh, one's well. good, you know. <laughs> that's right. They're both good. Yeah. They're both good. No, you got great kids there. All righty. Well, thanks again, and we will talk to you later. Uh, all right. Bye. Today's disaster tip comes from the book The Ultimate Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook by David Borgenicht, Joshua Piven, and Ben H. Winters. 
In a time of mass shootings and doorbuster sales, holiday shoppers may experience the sudden panic of a stampeding crowd. It's a fact that people are often injured and even killed in rapid, panicked crowd movements, and staying in the crush of people can actually cause suffocation. Act early and decisively. If the crowd begins moving rapidly, stay focused and visualize your exit strategy. Don't wait for the crowd of shoppers to get to you before making your move. Stay upright. Don't attempt to hold your ground. You risk being trampled if you try to resist the stampede. Turn your body in the direction the crowd is going and go with the flow. Hold your packages firmly. If you drop something, do not try to pick it up. Work your way to the outside of the stampede. Move to the edge of the crowd. Use the space near the walls to gain a few extra yards of room because most shoppers will leave a few feet between themselves and the surrounding walls. This will give you extra room to either slow down or escape. So be safe, be aware, and enjoy your holiday shopping. Happy Thanksgiving.